0: This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca
1: We tried last week to derive from the Bible the Jewish concept of the Messiah. Essentially, the starting point last week was the understanding that to really intelligently discuss the topic of who the Messiah is. For example, was Jesus the Messiah? Was any person the Messiah? You need to have a very clear working definition of the Messiah. Unless you begin the discussion with a clear picture and definition of the Messiah, you will essentially chase your tail and get nowhere, because as the expression goes, if you don't know where you're going, there are many ways of getting there. So what we tried to do last week was to look carefully at the Jewish Bible, at the Tanakh, and to understand where the concept of the Messiah comes from, how we actually derive it from an organic reading of the Bible. And essentially what I try to do is to show how this concept, this picture, really emerges very clearly and consistently from an organic reading of the entire Bible. So just very quickly, to get everyone um, up to date... We'll spend a few minutes reviewing, just to, as the Talmud says, uh, a person that studies something 101 times is better than someone who studies it 100 times. So we've got a ways to go yet. We, we saw that the Messiah. The word Messiah in English is really a way of saying the Hebrew word Mashiach, and Mashiach or Messiah means anointed. In the Bible, it applies to anyone or anything that was anointed with oil that means that it had oil poured on it or on him and that service, that ceremony of being anointed with oil or having oil poured on it was a way of initiating that person or that thing into the service of God so the sources we examined last week showed that the vessels in the sanctuary in the temple were anointed with oil the Jewish kings had oil poured on their heads as a way of anointing them into the service of God The Jewish priests, like Aaron, had oil poured on their heads to anoint them into the service of God. Jewish prophets were also anointed. And what we saw was that if someone was anointed, if someone went through the process of becoming anointed, of having oil poured on their heads, they were called an anointed one. They might be called in the Bible a Messiah, a Mashiach. And therefore, what we notice is that in the Jewish Bible, there are actually many Messiahs. If you were to ask someone in biblical times, where is the Messiah? They would say, well, which one are you referring to? The priest, the prophet, the king. So there was no concept in the Torah of one person that we refer to as the Messiah. The Bible basically uses the term Messiah in a generic sense. We use the term in a generic sense because there are many people who are anointed with oil. So the real question last week was, where does the concept of the Messiah come from? The term Messiah with the definite article. Right? When we speak in colloquial terms about the Messiah, and we speak about who the Messiah is going to be and when the Messiah is going to come, it's clear that we're not referring to any of the particular characters in the Bible, the kings, we're not referring to the priests in the biblical times, we're not referring to the, uh, the priests or the prophets. We're speaking about a concept of a future Messiah that's going to come. And that's the identity that we tried to establish last week. How does the Bible develop a concept of someone called the Messiah when significantly the term never appears in the Bible? You cannot open up a concordance or an index of the Bible and find the word the Messiah, except I showed you five or six places where in the beginning of the book of Leviticus it speaks about the high priest. And the high priest is called the priest, the, high, the, the anointed priest, ha-kohen ha-mashiach. So aside from those five specific references to Aaron, the high priest, the word Hamashiach is never used in the Bible in the sense of a future anointed one to come. So we, we simply don't have a clear-cut way of arriving at a picture of the Messiah simply by looking up the word in the Bible. If we could do that, the whole Jewish-Christian argument would be very short. Right? Jews and Christians argued for centuries about the Messiah. All we'd have to do is look in the back of the Bible, see, okay, so the Messiah... 16 references, check out what it says, and then you go home. But you don't have any place in the Bible where the word, the Messiah, is used. HaMashiach, to refer to a future person who is to come later in history. We derive that term, we derive that notion of the Messiah by essentially putting two things together. What we noticed last week was that there is a set of prophecies in the Bible, a large set, one of the most frequent prophecies in the Bible of a future age of perfection. The Bible promises that the broken world we're living in, the world that essentially is characterized by sin and strife and discord and apostasy and people not knowing God, that will change in the future. That's a promise that God makes. That there will come a time when the whole world will be at peace. The prophets speak about beating the swords in the plowshares, the spears in the pruning hooks. And the Bible speaks about that time as a time when all human beings will have an intimate knowledge of God. Those are the two primary characteristics of this future age of perfection. Of course, the Bible gives you a fine breakdown in terms of the finer points. For example, part of the idea of knowledge of God is that all Jewish people will fully observe all the laws of the Bible. The idea of peace in the Bible usually is expressed in terms of the Jewish people living at peace in their homeland. Although there are some expressions of actual universal peace between all the nations, many of the expressions of peace focused specifically on the Jewish people living at peace in their homeland. The Bible speaks, for example, about the temple in Jerusalem being built finally and staying forever built, and Jewish people being able to come there, and Gentiles coming there, and offering praises to God. But essentially, this is probably the major prophetic theme in the Bible, a promise that emerges through every single prophetic book. If you look at this larger circle There is no mention in the larger circle of an individual who will play any role during this period of time. Most of the prophecies speak just about an age of transformation, an age that's transformed. However, there's a small subset of verses within this larger set that speaks specifically about a Jewish king who will rule the land of Israel at the time when the world is transformed. We looked at about a dozen passages last week, which clearly speak about a Davidic king, a king from the line of David, who would rule Israel when the world is transformed, when the Jewish people are living in their homeland, when the temple's been rebuilt, when all people have knowledge of God, when there's an end to war in the world. The Bible never calls this person the Messiah. That person is never called in the Bible the Messiah. But since he's an anointed king, he is anointed. He has oil poured on his head. He is a messiah. So because he's the messiah that will come, that will be in existence at the end of time, at this age of perfection, we, by convention, refer to this particular anointed king as the messiah. The Bible never really tells us what role this king will play in bringing about this age of perfection. The Bible simply tells us there will be this age of perfection, there will be this king, And the Bible tells us very little information about the king, aside from the fact that he will descend from David, that he will be righteous, that he will judge people, that he will rule, he'll rule justly. But there's no clear picture in the Bible as to how or whether or not this king will actually bring about this age of perfection. We sometimes expect the Bible to tell us, well, how will this Messiah do it? The answer is he probably won't do it. You can, by analogy, look at Moses and the Jewish people leaving Egypt. Moses was, in effect, the first Jewish king. Yet Moses did not take the Jewish people out of Egypt. No human being could possibly do that. And clearly, no human being could transform the world. We see the transformation of the world as an act of God. God will bring about the transformation of the world. This king will play a pivotal role in that process. The same way Moses was an important character in the Exodus story, the messianic king will be a leader, a leader at a great time he will probably be a catalyst he will probably have an impact upon the world but clearly God will be the prime mover in the same way God was the one who took the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt it's one of the reasons why on Passover when we tell the story of Passover we leave out the name of Moses from our Passover Haggadah lest you think that Moses was the prime mover no no The Bible tells us it was God himself, no angel, no emissary, no intermediary, God himself took us out of Egypt, God himself will redeem the world at the end, but there will be a messenger of God, an agent of God, someone to lead the Jewish people, that will be the Messiah. Probably the most important concept that we can begin with this week is, there is no other information in the Bible, not one verse in the Bible, that gives us any other information about this future Davidic king. This is very crucial for your understanding of the rest of the course. All of the passages in the Bible that speak about any king that will come in the future are exhausted by this picture. All you know is that this king will rule as a king at the time when the world is perfected. There are no other passages in the Bible that give you any information about anything else this future king will do. It's a very important piece of information to bear in mind. Given this definition of the Messiah, given the information we've learned so far, it's very easy to see, it's clear to see why Jesus was not accepted as the Jewish Messiah. And as I mentioned last week, not just Jesus, but any of the messianic claimants. Josephus and the New Testament speak of about four people in the time of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. It was a time of messianic expectation. The Jews were very much clearly expecting to be saved from the Roman oppression and Roman domination. So several people popped up claiming to be the one. It was nothing personal against Jesus. It was simply that Jesus and none of the other claimants fulfilled the criterion of the Bible. They weren't able to fill the Bible's shoes in terms of what the Messiah was supposed to do. Now, the standard Christian explanation for all of the failures of Jesus to fulfill any of the messianic prophecies is that there will be a second coming of the Messiah. This essentially is the Christian knee-jerk reaction to the Jewish claim that Jesus failed to fulfill any of the messianic prophecies. They say, well, don't be so surprised that Jesus died without fulfilling the prophecies of bringing about a world of peace and a world of transformation. When Jesus returns, all of that will happen. This is the essential claim that Christian apologists make. We're going to show there are four basic weaknesses with this claim. Weakness number one is that it is essentially a theory coming out of left field. There is no biblical support for such a theory. The Bible never speaks about the Messiah or any, any Messiah returning after a first start that didn't work out. There simply is no information about it. We would feel more comfortable with such a theory if the Bible at least once spoke about the return of the Messiah who didn't accomplish the prophecies the first time around. Yet there is not one reference anywhere in the Bible to a second coming of the Messiah. Second problem is that, and this would require you to review last week's information, if all of these prophecies are to take place at the second coming, all the prophecies that we look for as messianic prophecies to determine who the Messiah will be, Christians are forced to relegate all these prophecies to the second coming of Jesus. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 2, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, ad infinitum. Christians are forced to say these will all take place when the Messiah returns. The problem, from a literary point of view, is that if you read those passages carefully, they're not speaking about the return of someone. All of those passages have a first coming perspective. They all speak about this person, boom, coming upon the world. Surprise! This person was never here before and is now coming back. So if the Christian point of view was correct, you would expect all of the prophecies we saw last week speaking about the person coming back and doing these things. And yet the Bible's perspective in terms of all the prophecies we looked at speaks about a first coming of someone. Thirdly, a second coming theory gives no credibility to the first coming of Jesus. To say that, well, Jesus will fulfill all the prophecies when he comes back doesn't help him for when he came the first time. So, if I were to say, for example, you know, my great-grandfather was the Messiah. And everyone says, oh, really? What did he accomplish? I think he didn't accomplish anything. He was actually killed by uh, the Ukrainians. However, you'll see, when he returns, he comes in the future, he will fulfill all the prophecies. So, good. You'll say if you're a smart person, so, no, when it happens, we'll talk about it. But the, he has no credibility as the Messiah when he was here 200 years ago or 100 years ago because nothing was accomplished. So the claim of a second coming essentially is a cop-out. It's a very convenient way of rationalizing the fact that someone didn't fulfill any of the messianic prophecies. The fourth problem is that the New Testament has Jesus speaking repeatedly about his return soon and imminently. Now, I believe, personally, that Jesus never said these things. I believe that these were comments put into his mouth by the later authors of the New Testament, and we'll be able to demonstrate this during the course. But the New Testament at least makes the claim for Jesus that he said that he will return imminently; he will return very, very soon. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here now who shall not taste, who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." So he's speaking to his own disciples and saying that there are many of you here, you will still be alive when I come back for my second coming. In the book of Mark, chapter 30, Jesus goes through a long discourse telling about what is going to happen during the time of the second coming. What type of things will take place before the second coming. He speaks about wars and rumors of wars and he speaks about earthquakes. And he says again to his disciples, Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And there are dozens of passages in the New Testament where Jesus himself says, I am returning soon. I will come back quickly. When Jesus did not return within the lifetime of his followers, as they expected, the movement pretty much quickly died out as a Jewish movement. The movement was only able to exist as a Jewish movement as long as there were Jewish people of his followers who expected him to return in their lifetimes. When after a generation or two they saw that he wasn't coming back the entire myth the entire story lost a tremendous amount of its credibility and the entire movement only persisted as a Gentile pagan distortion of the original Jewish movement. And we'll learn more about this as we go on in the course. (coughs) One of the primary ways that Christians try to substantiate the credibility of the messianic claims for Jesus is the appeal to all the miracles that he performs. This is probably one of the central claims that are made by Christian missionaries and Christian apologists. That all of the miracles and healings performed by Jesus clearly attest to his being the Messiah. What we need to do tonight is to examine this claim. What is the source for the claim that Jesus performed miracles. How would a person living in the year 1994 know that Jesus performed any miracles? We, We simply cannot look it up in the New York Times back then. We can't go to any historical documents. The only source is the New Testament. So the question we need to examine is, is the New Testament reliable when it makes these claims for Jesus? Is it a document that we can trust? Are its claims credible? And this will be a question we will deal with later on in the course in terms of how we as Jews relate to the New Testament. Do we as Jews accept the credibility and the claims of any book that's proposed by a religion? Do we read the Book of Mormon and assume that everything it says is true? Do we read the Book of the Quran and assume that everything it says is true? Do we read the Bhagavad Gita and assume that everything it says is true? Unfortunately, we as 20th century human beings put a tremendous amount of stock in the printed word. We tend to believe things that we read. And yet, we obviously have to ask the question, is what I'm reading credible? Is it true? Is it reliable? What right do I have to believe this? All things being equal, we generally do believe things that we read, unless we have reasons to assume otherwise. And when it comes to spiritual truths, when it comes to religious truths, especially when those religious truths contradict Jewish teachings, we need to ask ourselves very seriously, what is the credibility of the source that we're reading? And there will be an evening where we spend a tremendous amount of time explaining why Jews do not accept the New Testament as part of the Bible or the New Testament as a credible book. But tonight we'll be looking at one aspect of that. First, First point to remember is the New Testament was not written by historians. The New Testament was not written by historians. Who was it written by? It was written by Christians who were using this document as propaganda. And no one disputes this. The Gospels and the Epistles clearly, very, say very clearly about themselves. They're hoping that these writings will help convince other people about the claims of Jesus. So we're reading here not historical documentation. We're reading here propaganda that was written by missionaries to prove their religious beliefs. So we see clearly here this is not information which is objective. This is not objective information. And these are stories that are obviously very self-serving. Would people make up such stories? Would the New Testament writers make up stories about miracles that Jesus performed? Can we question their integrity? Can we question their, their, uh, their honesty? I personally don't know any of the writers of the New Testament. However, one simple experiment is to look at similar claims that are being made today by Christians to demonstrate the validity of their faith. One of the claims that is made constantly by Christian missionaries today is that miracles are still being performed today in the name of Jesus. you turn on any television show, this is what's happening every five seconds. People are being healed left and right by the thousands at missionary crusades. So the question is, are these people always telling the truth? Do we have any reason to doubt whether or not these miracles are actually happening? So I want to share with you a source that's not a friendly source. This is from a newsletter that's written by Jews for Jesus. They put out a newsletter called the Mishpacha Message and it's written to it's an in-house in-house uh, publication written to people that are on the Jews for Jesus mailing list. And This was a, a special edition that came out in the spring of 1991, focusing on the whole topic of miracles. So the editor writes the following. In preparing for this issue of the Mishpacha message, we invited you all to send in accounts of any miraculous healings that have taken place in your lives. We also asked that independent verification be provided for these healings. We received a number of inspiring testimonies, yet there was no one who had an instance where a medical test had been made to diagnose a condition with a corresponding test made later to show that a healing took place that was contrary to the laws of nature. One person on, a regular, on our regular mailing list claimed to have a healing where a diagnosis was made and recorded for bone cancer and that tests were done after the alleged healing showing that the cancer had disappeared. In fact, the person explained that the doctor himself had been healed of cancer. When we called to verify this with a doctor whose name had been supplied, he was quite adamant in telling us that he had no idea what we were talking about and that he didn't hold to this sort of thing. Sadly, this type of experience is all too common. This is not a critique by a non-Christian. These are Christian missionaries admitting that many of the claims for miracles that happen today are just bogus. When a good friend of mine, a Jewish believer in Jesus, was a medical doctor, heard that we were considering miracles for this forum article, he wrote us a word of caution. Apparently, my friend had done some personal investigation to verify the miracles in a number of books written concerning signs and wonders. He read read the books thinking that God might be calling him into a healing ministry, but to his dismay, he found each of the instances where healing was claimed to be questionable. Now, if we go to investigations that were done by objective sources, there have been people and societies who try to investigate the accuracy and the credibility of claims made for healings today in Christian services. Invariably, these are people that either were never sick in the first place or were never clear, cured in the second place. Now, we will discuss in a minute or two whether or not healings actually happen. But the question we're addressing now is, would a Christian missionary make up a claim that a miracle happened in order to convince people or inspire people? The answer is clearly yes. Back to the New Testament. Do we have any reason to doubt the historical veracity of the New Testament? Now, we don't have enough time tonight to go through the entire book So I'll just share with you one point, because here we have the possibility of outside corroboration. The New Testament tells a story of the crucifixion of Jesus, and essentially tells us that the person ruling Judea at that time, the Roman in charge of the uh, area where Jerusalem and uh, most of the Jewish people were living, was named Pontius Pilate. The New Testament tells us that Pontius Pilate really didn't want to crucify Jesus, but that he was afraid of the Jewish people. It paints Pontius Pilate as a milk toast, as someone who cowers before the Jewish people, someone who's terrorized by the Jewish people, someone who essentially has no spine, no backbone, and crumbles because the Jewish people are insisting that he crucify Jesus. That's the picture of the New Testament. A very weak, a very peaceful person who wouldn't think of taking innocent blood and who essentially is very scared of the Jewish people. Now we have objective reports on this Pontius Pilate in at least two sources. One is from a philosopher that lived in Alexandria, Egypt, named Philo, a Jewish philosopher. And he writes as follows. Pilate was a cruel man by nature, hard-hearted and entirely lacking in remorse. His rule in Judea was characterized by bribes, vainglorious and insolent conduct, robbery, oppression, humiliations, men often sent to death untried and incessant and unmitigated cruelty. Josephus, the historian Flavius Josephus, writes that Pontius Pilate was not only a brutal procurator who terrorized Jews and put thousands of people to death without cause. Josephus writes about him as probably the most brutal person that the Jews found themselves under. He was so brutal that Josephus reports that the Romans had to recall him to Rome for all the atrocities that he carried out against the Jewish people. He even offended the Romans. So we have here someone who in the general press is a bloodthirsty, brutal tyrant, and in the New Testament is painted as being someone very meek and kind, and basically crumbles in front of the Jewish people. One of these sources is not telling the truth. On to the more important question. Or several more important questions. Does the Jewish Bible, does the Tanakh, ever tell us that we'll be able to recognize the Messiah because he will perform miracles? When God wants to help us know who the Messiah is, does the Bible ever tell us that the Jewish people, God says the Jews, will be able to recognize the Messiah because he will perform magic tricks? Are there any indications in the Tanakh that we will recognize the Messiah due to the miracles he'll perform? Answer is, no. There isn't one instance where the Tanakh mentions that the Messiah will perform miracles or that we'll identify him by the miracles he performs. Now, why is this? Why is it that the Bible doesn't tell us that miracles will be crucial to identify the Messiah? Very simple reason. We know that in the Bible, miracles prove absolutely nothing. On the sheets that we just gave out tonight we'll go to a very, very famous story that you're all familiar with. When Moses and Aaron are in Egypt and are sent to perform ten miracles, the ten plagues, to essentially free the Jewish people from the land of Egypt, we know that the magicians of Pharaoh were able to replicate at least three of the miracles that were performed by Moses and Aaron. In the seventh and eighth chapters of the book of Exodus, We're told that when Aaron turned his staff into a snake, the the Egyptian magicians were able to do that. We're told that when Moses and Aaron turned the Nile River into blood, the Egyptian magicians were able to do that as well. And when when Aaron produced frogs out of the Nile by great numbers, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate that as well. So we see here that you don't have to be a good guy, a credible person, a legitimate person to be able to perform miracles. The New Testament itself acknowledges this in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 24, where Jesus predicts that there will be false messiahs and false prophets who will appear and produce great signs and omens and lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus himself predicts that before the second coming, he says, there will be false messiahs, and what will these false messiahs be able to do? They will be able to perform miracles. So clearly, someone doing a miracle proves nothing. The clearest proof of this is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, where God says that there will be prophets who will come and they will have the power to perform signs and wonders and miracles. God speaks to us and tells us in the Bible, he essentially warns us that there will be people who are prophets and they will be able to perform signs and wonders and miracles and God says, do not listen to these false prophets. So the question that emerges is very obvious. If they're false prophets... And God does not want us to listen to them. Why does God allow them? Why does God give them the power to perform signs and wonders and miracles? The Bible tells us the answer right here. Because God is testing us to see if we will be loyal to him or not. So one thing the Bible itself predicts is that in the future, there will be people who are sent by God to test our loyalty and test our faithfulness to God because they will have the power to perform signs and wonders and miracles. We know that in the time of Jesus, there were miracles performed by almost every major religion. We know that the Greeks claimed miracles by their god Asclepius. We know that Apollonius was able to do the exact same miracles that Jesus performed. For example, the casting out of demons. Anyone that's even vaguely familiar with the Talmud knows that rabbis were able to perform quite astounding miracles from healings to the actual creation of human beings and the creation of animals. There's no lack, there's no dearth of miracles in the ancient world, and there are no lack of miracles performed in the modern world. Clearly today, if you're to survey almost every major religion, there are claims that miracles are being performed, from Mormons to Muslims to people that follow the occult arts in the East, the Jews to Christians. Clearly not all of these religions are true because they're able to show miracles. So... A, we have no reason to believe the New Testament claims for miracles. And number two, more importantly, even if miracles happen, they don't prove anything. Now, probably the most significant miracle claimed in the New Testament for Jesus is his resurrection. Because this is probably unique among all the miracles. When you speak about healing someone, healing is something that takes place every Monday and Thursday. It's not a really big deal. But someone predicting their own resurrection is a significant as a startling miracle Although it's not unique, we know that in the Old Testament there were several resurrections performed. However, this is probably the central miracle claim for Jesus. So much so that Paul says in the book of Corinthians that if Jesus was not resurrected, you would all be essentially still in your sin. You would essentially be bound to hell. This is the make it or break it miracle for Christianity. So we need to examine the credibility of the resurrection story. And you must know that of all the miracles that are used to prove the veracity of the New Testament, it's the resurrection of Jesus that's held up as the most significant miracle. The problem that we have with the resurrection story, just if you haven't heard it before, I'll just briefly tell you, the the claim is made that Jesus predicted that after he dies he would be resurrected in three days. And the claim is that after he died, he indeed was resurrected from the dead and he was seen by many people. Again, the only source we have for this story is the New Testament. It's not reported in any other contemporary documents. Josephus, for example, who was a contemporary historian. Philo doesn't report it. It's not reported anywhere else, which is startling. The real problem we're going to see tonight is that in the New Testament itself, The story of the resurrection is the most garbled, confused, and ill-founded stories of almost any of the stories in the New Testament. If you wanted to use the New Testament, the Gospels, as the basis of history, you could probably get a clear reading of some of the stories. For example, you probably could read several stories about the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You could read several stories about the Last Supper. And you'd get consistent accounts, meaning even in the the New Testament documents, you'd get essentially a clear presentation of what happened. The problem with the resurrection is that every single element of the story is self-contradictory. If you go through the resurrection story from A to Z, and you simply map out each element of the story. What happened? When did it happen? Who was there? What did they see? What was said? Simply chart it out. You will see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels that present the story, contradict themselves on every single account in the story. And this is a presentation which does not inspire a tremendous amount of confidence in the story. If this were the most important miracle in the New Testament, We would hope, we would expect that they would get it straight. What actually happened back then? What are we being asked to believe? Several examples. When did the resurrection when did the crucifixion of Jesus take place? Jesus was crucified. When did it take place? The book of Mark tells us at nine o'clock in the morning. The book of John tells us at twelve noon. Which one was it? On what day of the year was Jesus crucified? Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus was crucified on Passover, the evening before the crucifixion was a Seder. The Last Supper was a Seder. However, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was crucified the day before Passover. So when did it happen? Was it on Passover or the day before Passover? How many nights did Jesus spend in the tomb? According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he spent three days and two nights in the tomb, According to the Gospel of John, two days and two nights. This is a problem, by the way, because in the Gospel, Jesus predicts he'd be in the tomb for three days and three nights. So according to the Gospels themselves, none of the Gospels has him fulfilling his own prophecy. Question. Who comes to visit the tomb? Who are the first people that come to the tomb to witness the empty tomb? According to the book of Matthew, there are two people who show up. According to the book of Mark, there were three people who show up. According to the book of Luke, there are four people who show up. According to the book of John, there is one person who shows up. What do these people or this person, what do they see when they get to the tomb? What do they come and see? According to the gospel of Matthew, they see one angel. According to the gospel of Mark, they see a young man. According to the gospel of Luke, they see two men. According to John's story, they don't see anyone. Again, what happens back then? What are we being asked to believe? When these people or this person actually comes to the tomb, what are they told finally? So according to Matthew and Mark, they're told to go to the Galilee and they will meet Jesus in the Galilee. And that's why the disciples in these stories go from Jerusalem to the Galilee to meet Jesus. In the book of Luke, they're told, no, don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem where you'll see Jesus. Now how do we handle, how do Christians handle these four contradictory stories. It's a very, very uncomfortable thing to have the basis of your religion so shoddy and so weak and so self-contradictory. So the primary defense that's made by Christian apologists is that just like any event that's witnessed by four people will be told from four perspectives. For example, if you have two people seeing a car accident, they may each give a slightly different report. The same claim is made that there were four Gospels, each telling a slightly different perspective on the same story. Now, there are three problems with this defense. Problem number one is that none of the four Gospel writers were eyewitnesses. If you were an eyewitness, then you might be telling a slightly different perspective. But neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John were on the scene. We're told who was on the scene, it didn't include any of the writers. Number two, the fact that there were different writers and different perspectives wouldn't explain away certain differences. It might explain away what color was the tomb. So I might see it as brown, you might see it as green. It wouldn't explain away what day had happened. The fact there were two people wouldn't mean that one would say Monday, one would say Tuesday. Perspective doesn't, doesn't change things like time. And finally, the New Testament does not claim that this is a book that was written by four human beings. The Christian claim is that this book was written by God who inspired, through divine inspiration, these four people. The New Testament claim is that this is not like the the, the Globe and Mail. This is not a human document. The New Testament claim is that this is the Word of God. So we would assume that if the Word of God, if God was giving over the story, God could get it straight. The human beings who were writing it, they may make mistakes, but God who was giving it to them wouldn't make mistakes. So here we have a problem with the four different perspectives. A second problem. Again, we go to the New Testament source itself. We go to the actual documents themselves. They tell us that when Jesus appears after the, crucifixion, after the resurrection and he shows up to his disciples, the New Testament tells us that his disciples don't recognize him. They did not even know who it was. So how today are we supposed to feel confident that they actually saw him when the very documents that tell the story tell us they didn't recognize who it was. They didn't know who it was. So why should today we believe it was Jesus if the people on the scene themselves weren't sure? Maybe it was someone who looked like Jesus. We're all today very familiar with cases of mistaken identity, especially when people have a vested interest in thinking that they saw who they thought they saw Third point. Does the Jewish Bible ever tell us that the Messiah would die and be resurrected? And this is important for two points. If the Jewish Bible predicted this would happen, it would give us more faith in the fact that it happened in the New Testament. But there aren't any sources, again, through any of these verses, there aren't any sources about the future messianic king who will be resurrected from the dead. However, if it were in the Jewish Bible... If it were in the Jewish Bible, the followers of Jesus would have expected it. One of the reasons we know that it wasn't in the Jewish Bible is that none of the followers of Jesus expected him to be resurrected from the dead. There are many stories in the New Testament where Jesus says to his followers, look, I have to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be brought back from the dead. And his followers don't say, praise God, you're going to fulfill what the Bible says about the Messiah. Whenever he talks about his imminent death, they go, God forbid, don't talk like that. That could never happen to you. So, if the Old Testament, if the Jewish Bible predicted that the Messiah would be killed and resurrected, his followers wouldn't have been so shocked any time they hear about his imminent death and resurrection. It's a complete surprise to them. One of the ways we know it was a complete surprise is that when the tomb is found empty, what is the first thing his followers assume? The tomb is found empty. And do the followers run around saying, praise God, he's been resurrected, he's up in heaven. No, they assume that somebody moved the body. That's, again, the New Testament says that they assume that someone moved the body. It's interesting that the New Testament tried to anticipate what the Jewish people would say against the resurrection story. The New Testament tries to anticipate when the resurrection story is put forward, what will the Jewish people say? Are the Jewish people going to say, We believe he was resurrected from the dead. No, the Jewish people are going to say that the body was stolen. The body was removed from the grave. So the New Testament, in order to anticipate this claim, put an element into the story that was supposed to essentially prevent the Jewish people from ever being able to make the claim that the body was stolen. What was the thing that the the New Testament writers put in? They say that the Romans, in order to make sure that the body was not removed from the cave, the Romans posted guards at the cave And the guards were there to make sure that the cave would not be tampered with. So now the Jewish people can't make the counterclaim that no, there wasn't a resurrection. The disciples stole the body to make it look like there was a resurrection. The problem is, when were these guards posted? According to the New Testament, Jesus was buried on Friday afternoon, before Shabbat. When were the guards posted at the tomb? You would think if they had any kind of brains, put them there when he's buried. The New Testament says in the book of Matthew they were not posted at the tomb until early, late Saturday morning. They didn't arrive until late Saturday morning. So that leaves all of Friday night when it's pitch dark and early Saturday morning where under the cover of darkness people who wanted to could sneak into the cave, pull out the body and then the Romans show up later and no one knows anything for the better. By the way, if we are to find a tomb that's empty that would be the most logical conclusion if we're presented with two choices that people remove the body or that he was miraculously resurrected up to heaven the first explanation would be the more clearly presentable another problem when the disciples are finally told of the resurrection when they're told that Jesus was resurrected the gospels say that they refuse to believe it they refuse to believe that it even happened so we see that they weren't anticipating its occurrence In the book of Matthew, the Pharisees allegedly ask Jesus for a sign. Jesus is making certain claims about himself. He's a great teacher. He's a great rabbi. He's a prophet. He knows what he's claiming. But in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked for a sign. Actually, in the book of Mark, he's asked the same question. And he says to the Pharisees, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation. So he's asked for a sign, and he says, you will not get any signs. In the book of Matthew, however, Jesus says, I will give you one sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was buried in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too shall the Son of Man be buried in the cave for three days and three nights, and then he will arise. So Jesus here in the book of Matthew is presumably predicting his resurrection from the dead. And he's saying this to answer the Pharisees and saying, this is going to be the sign that I'm going to give you. You want a sign? This will be the sign. I will be resurrected from the dead. What is problematic in the story is that after Jesus is allegedly resurrected, he fails to show up in front of the Sanhedrin and say, Hi, I'm back! which Which would have been proper. Because he claimed to them that he would give them a sign. How convenient that the only people who later see him are his own best friends. The people who were asking for a sign were not his best friends. They were the rabbis. He said to the rabbis, I'll give you a sign. He didn't tell me to give my disciples a sign. I'll give you a sign. I will come back out of the ground. What would have been appropriate would have been. What would have made the story more credible would be for him to come out of the grave after three days, show up and say, look, I told you I'm going to be back. I'm back we find the same kind of convenient explanation given by Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith claims that the angel Moroni came and revealed to him the Book of Mormon, and that it was revealed on these golden plates. And in the front of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith claims that these plates he showed to certain people, just to, uh, just to help the credibility of the story. Now, if it was a really credible story, he would have taken the plates and gone to the New York Times or to the Globe and Mail or the museum and show them to people that were objective look these are the golden plates that the angel gave to me if you look at the beginning of the Book of Mormon who were the people that witnessed these golden plates his 12 best friends so how convenient it is that when Jesus claims that there will be people that will meet him after the resurrection it's only the people that believed in him anyway it wasn't the people who were asking for a sign another problem this is a really interesting story In the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 52 to 53, the Gospel tells us something absolutely amazing. Matthew says to us that after the resurrection of Jesus, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints, of the righteous people, who had died, were raised and resurrected. And coming out of their tombs, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This is an incredible story. This is saying that not only was Jesus resurrected from the dead, but that many righteous Jews at that time came out of their graves and walked around Jerusalem, appearing to many people. Now, we would assume that if that had happened, we would know about it. That would have made the front page of the papers. And yet there isn't any record in any source, anywhere, that this happened. Not even in any other of the Gospels. Meaning that if the New Testament wanted to tell a juicy story, this could have found its way into the epistles of Paul, into the books of Mark and Luke and John. This this is more amazing than the resurrection of Jesus. These are people that weren't the Messiah, and they're coming out of the graves walking around. Yet it doesn't appear anywhere else but in the book of Matthew. I ask the question, how credible is this story in the book of Matthew? Does it inspire a tremendous amount of credibility? Another problem. How was Jesus resurrected? In the flesh or in the spirit? Meaning, what actually happened back then? Did he come back completely reconstituted as a body or was it a spirit that floated around? So the Gospels, the four Gospels tell us that Jesus came back in the flesh. The epistles later on in the New Testament claim that, no, he came back as a spirit. So question, what happened back then? Why can't the New Testament get this very central point straight? Was it a bodily resurrection or a spiritual resurrection? By the way, a spiritual resurrection is very similar to Jesus appearing only to his best friends. Talmud tells us that if you want to lie, you should place your witnesses far away. I wrote to the Shaker, Right? If you want to lie to someone, you say, well, this and this happened. Where are my witnesses? My witnesses took a plane to the outbacks in Australia that you, maybe if you spend 10 years, you'll find them. Mm-hmm. So it's very convenient when you place your witnesses in a place where they can't be cross-examined. So to say that Jesus was resurrected in the spirit, you can't argue with that. You can't check it out. To say that he only appeared to his believers, his followers, there's very little way of objectively cr- clarifying the story. A red flag should go up. We should really sit and wonder and scratch our heads when this story of a resurrection of the Messiah doesn't appear anywhere in the Jewish Bible, but where does it appear all the time? If you read Greek and Roman mythology, virtually every Greek and Roman god was not just, by the way, resurrected from the dead, but born of a virgin, part of a triune trinity, was crucified or was executed, Many many of the elements of the Christian myth were anticipated in much of the pagan culture that was around back then. So if there is a story, a source, for the resurrection of the Messiah, we should look to pagan mythology rather than the Jewish Bible. Finally, one further point, one last point. One of the things missionaries ask us rhetorically is, if the resurrection story were not true, why would so many Christians during the course of history willingly go to their depths in their belief that it did take place? on a certain level, this is a very, uh, it's a poignant point. If it didn't happen, if the the story wasn't true, why would his disciples go to their deaths? Why would so many Christians die for their belief that the the resurrection took place? And when you think about it, it's actually a very foolish point to make. We know, for example, that uh, Muslims believe that Muhammad went straight to heaven from a rock in Jerusalem. He flew up straight to heaven. And even to this very day, there are Muslims who strap dynamite to themselves and will go on a Jewish bus in Tel Aviv and scream Allahu Akbar because they believe that when they blow themselves up, they will be instantly transformed into heaven. So, why would these Muslims believe, why were they willing to kill themselves if the Islamic story was not true? Why would Jews go to their deaths? For Judaism? Why would Jews prefer death to baptism if Judaism weren't true? Why would Joseph Smith and the early Mormons die as martyrs if the Mormon story wasn't true? We all know that people are willing to go to their deaths for what they believe. Going to death for what you believe does not prove that what you believe is true. Clearly, many people die for things that aren't true. One last question for tonight. After all is said and done the most pressing question that we should have at this point is how can there be any Christians in the world that believe this? That would be on a very simple level a very obvious question. If Jesus clearly didn't fulfill any of the prophecies if there's very little credible evidence for any messianic claims that were made on his behalf how is it possible how was it possible 2,000 years ago for people to believe he was a messiah? And how is it possible today for people to believe he's a messiah? It's a very, very troubling question. I mentioned in previous classes that there was a psychologist named Ash who performed an experiment where he took a group of people this large and he put two lines on a wall. And the lines were of different sizes. A 9-inch line and an 11- or 12-inch line. And he went around the room and he asked the people around the room, are these two lines the same size or are they different size lines? Now, every single person in the room was a stooge. They were told what to say. They were part of the experiment. So they were all told to say these two lines are the same size. So Ash went around the room, and this was in a college crowd, 30 people, 35 people. Each person said, well, the lines, uh, they look about the same size to me. And they go around, and the poor person at the end of the line think to themselves what's going on around here these people they they must maybe they left the glasses home or they they're having some kind of like a dizzy spell but the person in the last seat is probably going out of their mind how do you account for all these people that are just crazy they're blind they're crazy but what Ash found was that 72% of the subjects in the last seat would go along with the rest of the group it's a very frightening experiment because most of us sitting here in the room are saying to ourselves huh me I would never go along with the rest of the group. I know what I see. I say what I see. I don't have... I'm not not a spineless person. I'm not a sheep that just goes along with the rest of the crowd. I stick to my guns. I see two different size lines. I say two different size lines. And yet, seven of you out of ten, there are ten people here at least, seven of you would go along and say these two lines are the same size. So we're Jewish people in a world There are now 12 million Jews in a world of 5 billion people. 12 million Jews. Two billion of these people are Christians. And two billion of these people are saying, you Jews are crazy. That's the Jewish dilemma. That we live in a world where we're always psychologically looking over our soldier and saying, Wait, is it possible that two billion Christians could be wrong? We begin to really doubt ourselves. We begin to say to ourselves, maybe we're, maybe we're the ones that are crazy. Is it possible that two billion Christians are wrong and the, entire, and the Jewish people are right? Is that possible? The whole world is wrong and the Jews are right. Does that make any sense? So go to any Christian today. Walk up to any Christian and say, the day before Jesus, the day before Jesus, you had the Jewish people who believed in one God who gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, and you had the rest of the world, everyone else, who were pagan barbarians, who worshiped rocks and sticks and bugs and toads that was the rest of the world there were no Muslims there were no Christians there were no Seventh day Adventists there were Jews and there were pagan barbarians who worshipped bugs and rocks and ask any Christian in the world and by the way the world thought the Romans thought the Jews were crazy you don't work on the Saturday you guys one day a week you take off they thought we were nuts so you ask any Christian in the world today the day before Jesus you had the entire world saying the Jews were crazy and you had the Jewish people say no we're right And any Christian in the world would say, you know what? All the Jews are right and the entire world was wrong. That's what they will tell you. The Jews are right and the whole world was wrong. So we simply say, why do you think anything has changed? Why do we think anything has changed? How do we explain the fact that people believed in Jesus even though essentially the whole proje- project was a failure. How do we explain that? We told the story last week of the missionary who was bothering two old Jews on the train in Europe. It happened about a hundred years ago. I told the story because it happened to me about eight years ago. I simply stole the lines of this smart rabbi. And the missionary was saying to these two old Jews, you know, you Jews, you better think about your rejection of Jesus because... Uh, the greatest rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, he thought that he thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. Rabbi Akiva, the greatest rabbi, he thought that Bar Kokhba, who lived around the year 135, that he was the Messiah. So if Rabbi Akiva was wrong about the Messiah, maybe all the rabbis are wrong, and maybe the Jewish people should uh, reconsider Christianity. So these two Jews were really bothered by this. They were a little bit shaken. Rabbi Akiva made a mistake. He made a mistake about Bar Kokhba the Messiah. So there was a great rabbi, the Brisker Rose, who heard this, he walked over to this missionary and said, well, why are you so sure that Bar wasn't the Messiah? What makes you so confident that he wasn't the Messiah? And the missionary said, well, it's obvious he was killed by the Romans. So it is clear that Jesus was not the Messiah because he was killed by the Romans. On the cross itself, Jesus probably recognized this. On the cross itself, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end of his life, he realizes maybe he really wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he really wasn't who he thought he was. Now, Christians will interpret this verse differently. We'll learn about this in the future weeks. But it's certainly legitimate to say, if you're reading this passage as an outsider, that Jesus here recognizes that he failed in his mission. He recognizes that he wasn't the Messiah. He's being put to death, and he's not fulfilling any of the prophecies. So how do we understand the ability for Christianity to continue to exist, despite the fact that it begins on a false step. So I want to share with you several stories that I think will make this clearer. In the year 1666 approximately, there was a Jewish person who claimed to be the Messiah. Now, the historical perspective was very similar to the first century Roman world. The Jewish people had just gone through the Chemelnitsky massacres. Bogdan Chemelnitsky put to death hundreds of thousands of Jews. If you see the news today in Rwanda, so a similar thing took place in uh, the Jewish world. There were hundreds and thousands of Jews that were killed by Helmonitsky and his Katsaks. And the Jewish people were reeling, they were suffering from this terrible series of pogroms, and they were expecting, they were hoping that God would redeem them and send the Messiah. Now there were two other things that happened in the world back then. Number one, Jewish mystics predicted in advance that the year 1666 would be the year the Messiah comes. And Christian mystics thought that that year would be the year that Jesus returns. So in the air was a tremendous expectation that something was going to happen. So here you have two very, very ripe elements. You have the Jews plotting and reeling because they're suffering and they're praying for redemption. And then you have these predictions. So guess what happens in the year 1666? Someone shows up and says... Ha, the Messiah, famous <laughs> Shopsite fee. And believe it or not, he attracted hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of Jews. Now, what did it mean that these people believed he was the Messiah? It didn't mean that they thought he was going to become the king of Turkey. It meant that he was going to become the king of Israel. It meant that they were going to follow him back to the land of Israel from Turkey where they were. And he will become the messianic king in the land of Israel. And these people sold their homes and they sold their possessions and they were going to follow him back to Israel. Unfortunately, he was captured by the Turks and he was thrown into jail and he was forced to become a Muslim. He was forced to convert to Islam. So at that point, here is this guy who's rotting in a Muslim jail and he's now a practicing Muslim. So any person with a clear mind would say, I guess he's not the Messiah. (laughs) It's pretty clear which most of the people back then did recognize most of his followers were very bitter very depressed and very hostile to all the mystics that misled them they said ah oh, those miserable mystics they predicted everything wrong but they went home very bitter realizing they've thrown their lives down the tubes but we know that many many thousands of Jewish people did not give up belief in Shapsai Tzvi and they said you know what the person in jail is not the real Shapsai Tzvi he's a double he's a lookalike The real Shachzai C went up to heaven and he will come down soon from heaven to bring us back to Israel. And they found verses in the Bible to prove that the Messiah was supposed to convert to another religion. Another story. In the 1950s, there was a, I think he was a Jewish uh, sociologist named Leon Festinger. One of the most, if you study psychology in university, probably one of the most famous social psychologists that ever lived. And he developed a theory called cognitive dissonance. He did a study of cognitive dissonance um, that focused on a woman who was a channeler in upstate New York. We know we have channelers today that claim to have messages from people in outer space. So this woman claimed to receive messages from spirits in outer space, and she would, by automatic writing, be able to record the messages of this entity. And her major prophecy was that the world would be destroyed by a flood on a certain day. And she had a small group of people who followed her, and they were people, they're believers, right? They believed that the world would be destroyed on a certain day by a flood, and what they do? So they would collect tuna fish cans, and they'd hoard everything, and they would make sure that when the day came, they were prepared. As the day got closer and closer, a certain amount of media attention was drawn to this group. Festinger had infiltrated the group with three of his students. There were three graduate students who were there as members of the group to record what was going on. And obviously, the world wasn't destroyed by a flood in the 1950s. We know that we're still here. So the question is what happened to that group when the world, when D Day arrived and the world wasn't destroyed? So you would think, maybe, that everyone would say, this woman is a phony. She's a fraud. She's clearly not a, the real thing. She's, you know, uh, making things up. She's not a real channeler. All her messages are false. Let's get out of here and get a life. <laughs> so that would be a rational reaction. What happened? Fessinger predicted that cognitive dissonance would tell us that when there is this conflict between their beliefs and reality, he was studying the whole issue of disconfirmation of belief. What happens when your beliefs run head on into stark disconfirmation? So he predicted that rather than saying that they were wrong, they would become more ardent in their beliefs and they would become more aggressive at trying to proselytize other people. We read this passage last week in the passage by Eric Hafa, the true believer, that the missionary personality often tries to convert other people to assuage their own internal doubts. So Fessinger predicted that these people would become more aggressive to convert other people to believe in this woman as a channeler, and that's exactly what happened. That rather than falling apart as a group, they persisted and became more aggressive in, in espousing her theories. One final story, which took place in our own days, took place in the 70s in Massapequa, Long Island, in New York, and it, the star of this story was a Lutheran minister named Jack Hickman, Jack Hickman was a very charismatic minister who was very popular with children, and he was able to attract hundreds of people to his Lutheran church. He, was, at one point, was a junior pastor or the youth pastor, and he became very much popular, very much admired, and he had a huge following. One day, he came to the church and said that he received a revelation from God, and the only way to be a good Christian is by becoming an Orthodox Jew. So, all the people in his group got <laughs> circumcised, they began observing the Sabbath praying in phylacteries and in talis and wearing tithis and keeping kosher, not just kosher, but he had his own very, very strict kosher regulations and observing all the Jewish marital laws. He, they became very, very strict Torah observers. They would pray in Hebrew. They changed the name of the church to congregation, Shoresh Yeshai, the root of Jesse. And they believed they were going to be the vanguard group to her- herald in the second coming of Jesus. And this group really took off, especially among Jewish people in Long Island. He attracted hundreds of Jews. He ended up having to build a second building. It was a huge group. After years, and after developing a tremendous membership, uh, he was caught sleeping with some of the boys, young boys in the congregation. And they discovered that this Jack Hickman was a child molester. Now, their immediate reaction was shock, and what they wanted to do was to investigate this person further he had told them many stories about his life about his relatives about how he had a Jewish background and they began to send private investigators to to check up on his stories they found out that everything he told them was bogus at that point half of the church left they realized he was a pervert and a liar and he was someone that they couldn't follow as a spiritual leader half the people remained half the people remained And they said, well, actually, in Jewish practice, there is a ceremony in the Kabbalah called the passing on of the seed. And when a leader wants to find appropriate successors, he will masturbate little boys. And that's all part of the Jewish tradition. This is a story that was concocted. Now, what we see from this is a principle that I believe was articulated by Sigmund Freud, who said, when it comes to self-deception, every man is a genius. The followers of Shabtai fee had invested a tremendous amount of energy, emotional energy, and real energy in believing that this person was the Messiah. When years later, they realized that it was all for nothing, it's very difficult for a person to accept that kind of reality. The average person that buys, for example, a $20,000 car and realizes a month later it's a lemon will usually not sell the car for a $12,000 loss. Most people will start putting money in to fix the lemon up. That's how we react. It's hard for us to admit that we're wrong. We like to think that we're right. So the followers of Shafzai Svi, in order to be able to maintain their belief that this converted Jew who's now in a jail as a Muslim is the Messiah, was to say, No! The Messiah was supposed to convert to another religion. And it's there in the Bible. That's exactly what happened with the people who follow this channeler. They said well, the world was supposed to be destroyed on this date, but they weren't worthy and they had a a number of explanations that showed that in the same way that Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, had about 15,000 different dates when the Messiah was supposed to return. And every time it didn't happen, they come up with an explanation. Rather than saying we were wrong, they simply explain away the mistake. And finally, the followers of Jack Hickman Instead of 20 years later, 15 years later, saying, you know what, I flushed 15 years of my life down the toilet and walking away and saying, I've got to rebuild my life, they ended up trying to explain away what happened, justify what happened, and be able to maintain their belief in this false teacher. I would submit that most of the followers of Jesus, when he was killed on the cross, realized he wasn't the Messiah. I believe that he realized he wasn't the Messiah, and the New Testament seems to indicate that most of his disciples ran away. They panicked when they saw he was dead. That's the end of the Messiah. Let's get out of here. And that's what the New Testament teaches us, that they all split. And that would be the normal rational reaction, that they would admit that he wasn't the Messiah. Let's get out of here. However, there were probably a group of people who could not admit they could not accept the possibility that he was not the Messiah. It was too difficult an admission to make. So, when it comes to self deception, every man's a genius. So, what we do is we recreate the story to fit the facts. And what Christians ended up doing was, at first, saying that, well, he was the Messiah, but he will come back from the dead very soon and bring about the changes in the world. That was the initial reaction, which is not so off the wall. It's possible. We, in Judaism, believe that people can be resurrected from the dead. In the Old Testament, it happens. We believe that in the future it will happen. So it's not insane to say that this person will come back from the dead and pull it off. But when he didn't come back in their lifetimes, there was a new explanation that was needed. And the story essentially had to develop where they came up with an explanation where they could have a belief in a dead messiah. They needed to be able to essentially redefine the messianic concept in a way which would accommodate a dead, crucified Messiah. And this is the, the counterclaim that Christians would make. Christians would say that, fine, you have all these examples of groups who have to reconstruct their theology to accommodate failure, and Jesus looks like he fit into that pattern, but there's one major difference. You don't hear about shop-site-speed people anymore. You don't hear about... Jack Hickman anymore. All these groups passed away. They faded away. Christianity is still here. And psychologically, that is the strength of the Christian position that they are not like any other flaky group in the past that came up with a new theology. They are a serious group that now amounts to two billion people. So we need to examine this Christian claim that Christianity must be true because it has persisted for 2,000 years. And that might give some credence to the theory that Jesus was an Messiah who died to atone for the sins of the world. I want to share with you a passage in the Greek Testament, in the Christian Bible, from the book of Acts, chapter five. You don't have this in front of you. This is early on in the history of Christianity. This is soon after the early church gets started. The story here describes a trial that takes place in Jerusalem. The story tells that the followers of Jesus were brought up on trial for being an annoying nuisance in Jerusalem, that apparently they were offending many Jewish people. So they have this trial, and the trial is held in front of of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the Jewish rabbinic court, and the greatest rabbi of his generation. The mob, the people that are bringing at this point is Peter to court. The mob wants to essentially beat the hell out of Peter. (laughs) They bring him to trial and Gamaliel says the following thing. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. Be very careful what you propose to do to the followers of Jesus. Because some time ago Someone named Sudis rose up, claiming to be somebody. He was someone that claimed to be the Messiah back then. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed. And all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. His group disbanded. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census. And he took many people with him, but he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. Do not bother these followers of Jesus. For if this movement or action should be of men, if this new emerging Christian movement is a man-made movement, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them and you may even be found fighting against God. This is a passage that is quoted by many Christian missionaries as an argument to convince Jewish people of the veracity of their faith. That the Jewish head of the Sanhedrin himself declared that if Christianity persists, that will demonstrate that it isn't like all these other faiths that sprung up and had to explain away a way of failure, but ultimately faded into non-existence. They claim that Gamaliel is teaching us here that if Christianity passed, passes the test of time, that will prove that it is true. And if Christianity does not pass the test of time, then the Jewish people have nothing to worry about. One thing is very clear. It's very clear that Gamaliel didn't really believe that if a religion lasts for a critical amount of time, that proves it's a true religion. He obviously didn't believe that. And no intelligent Christian today would believe that either. There's no Christian in the world today who will say, well, Islam must be true because Islam has lasted so many hundreds of years. There's no Christian in the world today that would say Confucianism or Buddhism or Hinduism is true because it has lasted so many thousands of years. There's no Christian in the world today that would say Judaism is true because we've been around for 3,000 years. So obviously, the appeal to the fact that you have lasted a long time is a ridiculous appeal. It does not make any sense and clearly Gamaliel did not really believe that to be the case. It's not difficult to explain how Christianity was able to spread so rapidly. You don't have to look very far. First of all, for the first century or two of its existence, Christianity was a very unpopular religion. Christians themselves were looked at as being very obnoxious, if you ever read Roman history. And they really did not have a huge following. It wasn't until about the year 350, 325, that Christianity got off to a very, very, very unfair head start because the ruler of the world essentially back then Constantine became a Christian at least nominally became a Christian and he was able to impose Christianity on what was essentially the entire known world not through the force of persuasion he did not run seminars throughout the world proving that Christianity was true It's not as if you had people lining up to take courses in Christianity and say, you know what, this beats paganism. Constantine was able to impose Christianity on the known world by the force of the sword. People didn't have much ability to argue with Constantine and his armies. And in reality, it was not a difficult sell. It was not a hard sell to get the world to accept Christianity. If you go back in time, slightly before Christianity... It might be surprising to you, but Judaism was a very popular religion. Much of the world back then, there were millions of people who admired Judaism from afar. They were called in literature God-fearers. They were God-fearers. They were people who admired the Jewish intellect, admired Jewish history, admired the Jewish religion, really appreciated Judaism as being something very unique and special. And yet, Judaism was a difficult religion to hook onto. It meant getting circumcised. It meant observing all the commandments of the Bible. It meant going through a very difficult conversion process. So now Constantine is coming and essentially offering the world what is a form of Judaism but with no price tag. He's saying, we're going to make all you pagan barbarians Christians, which to the world back then was some kind of form of Judaism. So it wasn't as if people were choking when they had to become Christians. This was on a certain level very attractive. Maimonides, the Rambam, and Yehuda Levi, in his book, The Kuzari*, actually point out that the perpetuation of Christianity, and Islam for that matter, but tonight we're talking about Christianity. So the Rambam, Maimonides, argues that the success of Christianity could very well be part of God's plan. And Maimonides argues as follows. He says that we know that the world... Ultimately, will reach truth. We know that the world will come to see the truth at the end of history. And that they will see the truth through the Jewish people as teachers. The prophets say that even though most of the world looks at the Jewish people as being a crazy minority of stubborn people who refuse to see the truth, the Bible says that at the end of history, the world will come to the Jewish people and say, you know what? You Jews are right and we were wrong. It's one of the most amazing patterns of prophecy in the Jewish Bible. We saw during one of the first weeks of class here the prophecy from the book of Zechariah in the 8th chapter where he says that at the end of days ten people from each nation in the world will come to each Jew and grab their clothing and say we want to follow you because we've heard God is with you. And we have this prophecy in many, many books of the Bible. So we have this idea that the world is going to come to the Jews and say, you know, you were right all along, all along. The problem is... <coughs> For most of the world, there's no confrontation with Judaism. When it's Judaism versus the pagans and the barbarians, there was very little area where we engaged each other. And it wasn't as if throughout history there's been this ongoing philosophical battle between Jews and idolaters, or Jews and pagan barbarians, where... (coughs) We've been engaged in this ongoing dispute. And finally, at the end, they're going to say, Oh, we see that you were right all along. Maimonides suggests that one of the accomplishments of Christianity and Islam was that it took a lot of the basics of Judaism, for example, monotheism in some form, the Bible, the concept of the Messiah, And it's spreaded to a huge percentage of the world. Today, there are 5 billion people in the world and 2 billion are Christians, 1 billion are Muslims. And it's spreading dramatically. It's not as if the Oriental religions are spreading rapidly. We're not seeing many, many conversions in the world to Buddhism anymore. It's Islam and Christianity. And it's going down the wire. It's going down to the wire. And Islam and Christianity are two religions where the world has been raised dramatically, many, many levels higher than where they were, you just look at the Christian world and compare it to the pagan barbaric world that preceded it, there's no difference. There's a tremendous difference. So Mamani says that what happened is we have now an interim stage where the world has accepted Islam and Christianity and it now put a tremendous percentage of the world in contention with Judaism. Because Christianity and Islam are competing religions as opposed to Buddhism or, or Confucianism. They don't compete with Judaism. But Christianity and Islam are now the two major contenders. And therefore, when the truth finally happens, when the Messiah finally comes, it's the Christians and the Muslims that are going to say, Oh my goodness, now we see what was going on all along. For most of the world, it's not part of the Christian Islamic matrix. The real Messiah showing up is going to be a meaningless event. They never cared about the Messiah in the first place. So it's quite possible that the spread of Christianity has been part of God's plan. And back to Acts chapter 5. If Gamaliel didn't mean, and no thinking person would really mean, that the spread of a religion proves that it's true, what did he mean when he told these people Don't fight these early Christians. If you do, right, if you fight against them and it's of God, you're fighting against God. And if if it's not of God, it'll fall apart by itself. What was he talking about then? Very, very fascinating what he was saying. Gamaliel was clearly not saying that it's impossible for idolatry or falsehood to exist. We know that in Judaism, idolatry and falsehood will exist till the end of time. We know that one of the roles of the Messiah will be to wipe out all of idolatry. It says in the Prophets that we read, In that day, God's name will be won. At the time of the Messiah's perfection of the world, then the whole world is going to believe in God. Until that time comes, idolatry will exist. So clearly Gamaliel wasn't saying that it's impossible for falsehood to exist for a long time. He knew and everyone in the world knows that idolatry and falsehood will exist till the end of time. So he wasn't dealing with the question of truth and falsehood. Gamliel was dealing with the question of Jewish continuity. He was dealing with the question of the continuity of the Jewish people. And Gamliel was saying the following. Any admixture of falsehood with Judaism will not survive. He wasn't saying that falsehood can't survive. He was saying that whenever you mix in a little bit of falsehood to Judaism, that mixture, that new mixture will not exist. It will not survive. So he was saying the following. If this new movement is true from a Jewish point of view, if what they're doing is in line with Judaism, it will go on to exist forever. If what these people are doing is out of line with Judaism, it will stop existing. And did this prophecy take, take place or didn't it take place? So let's examine. Who was Leo speaking to? 2,000 years ago. Was he speaking to Southern Baptists who ate pork and, and had the Sabbath on Sunday and worshipped the Trinity and sung hymns to Jesus Christ who they thought was the God who came down from the heaven born of a virgin? Clearly that wasn't the case because if it was, He wouldn't have said, hey, there's nothing wrong with this group. If these people that were up on trial didn't observe any of the Torah, didn't keep kosher, believed in God as a trinity, Gamaliel would have said, hey, these guys are heretics. These guys need to be punished. So clearly the first Christians, the early followers of Jesus, were not today's Baptists or today's Assemblies of God Trinitarians who have Sunday Sabbath, eat pork, and believe in the trinity. The first followers of Jesus were Orthodox Jews. They were Orthodox Jews. They kept the Torah. They kept the Sabbath. They kept kosher. They didn't believe Jesus was God. They didn't believe he was born of a virgin. They simply thought he was the Messiah. And they believed that even though he died, he would come back soon and redeem them and transform the world. So Gamaliel said, fine. They believe that. Let them believe that. If it's true, fine, mazel tug. If it's not true, this group will not last very long. What happened? This group did not last very long. Within 150 years, kaput. No more Orthodox Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It became, the only part that survived was a transformed movement that essentially had almost nothing to do with its original Jewish roots. They didn't believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus became a Greek, pagan, Hellenistic God. All of Judaism was out the window. You didn't have people in 150 years keeping kosher, observing the Jewish holidays. It was a transformed religion. So Gamaliel said, You Jews who think that Jesus is the Messiah, if it's true, fine. It'll happen. Their name is the Messiah. If it's not true, you will die out very soon. What happened? They die out very soon. The essential point from tonight is. That Christianity was able to persist only by changing the religion around to be not a Jewish religion where there's a belief in the Messiah who fulfills biblical prophecy, but a belief in a dying Messiah who dies, and we'll examine why Christians believe Jesus had to die, and we'll examine the evidence that Christians will bring for this, and the basic program for the coming weeks will be to examine the second major way that Christians try to prove their religion, not through. Uh, the the empirical way of demonstrating miracles but by demonstrating the truth of scripture what Christians will try to do is demonstrate the veracity of their religion by showing that it's all anticipated in the Jewish Bible that the Bible predicted that Jesus was the Messiah the Bible predicted the Messiah would be killed the Bible predicted all of the things that Christians maintain theologically what we will do in the next week is examine the methodology by which Christians use the Jewish Bible, the, met the, the conceptual errors that Christians make, and then we will spend the rest of the course examining the major proofs that Christians bring from the Jewish Bible to substantiate their beliefs.
0: Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish